If you've got your Bible and you want to turn to Revelation 21, I want to invite you to do that. That's where we're going to be today. Revelation 21. I have a, a professor in college who said that sometimes preaching is surprise, sometimes preaching is a reminder. So sometimes when you're preparing the sermon, you're surprised by something you find in the Bible, you want to share that surprise with the congregation. But other times you, you want to remind the congregation of what they hold most dear, like what they believe at their core. And that's what today's about. And that's what we're going to find in Revelation 21. Because Revelation 21 is about heaven. It's about heaven. People are fascinated with heaven. And I got on Amazon this week and I searched heaven and you cannot believe how many books have been written by people who claim to have died, gone to heaven and come back, right? A lot of people. In fact, if you die anytime soon, you should definitely write a book about it. It will sell really well, right? But we don't learn a lot about heaven in scripture. And that's probably part of the reason we're so fascinated by it because there's not a lot of details about what comes after this in scripture. There's in Luke 16, a parable of Lazarus and the rich man. You remember that? Now it's a parable, so it's not really about details. It's about an idea, okay? But in that parable, we don't learn a lot about paradise or heaven, except that apparently Abraham's there, which is good, you know, which is good. I'm glad he made it. And then there's Matthew 3, where Jesus is walking towards John the Baptist as he is baptizing, standing in the water. John looks up and he sees Jesus. And Matthew 3 says that heaven is opened and a dove descends and a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. But if John sees anything as he peers into heaven, as it's opened, he never tells us. He never tells us any of those details. And our fascination with heaven, I don't think it's just some curiosity we have. I think it's really at the core of who we are. I was with a, a dear friend in the hospital who was nearing the end of his life. He had these tears rolling down his cheek and he said, Eric, what's next? What's next? And at some level, we all wondered that question, right? What's next? And the Bible is really concerned with that question of what's next, even if it's not as concerned as we would like it to be with the details of that. And the reason the Bible cares or is concerned about what's next is because really that's a question in some ways about what's now. It's kind of an odd phrase. Let me try to re-say it. The reason the Bible gives attention to what comes next is because those of us who are asking that question have deep problems with what's going on right now. The Bible describes those problems as sin. You know, that sin, our tendency to mess things up, distances God from us. It distances God from the world that he made and a world without God is a world that's in trouble. So even in the moment where we celebrate on Sunday morning that God has forgiven us of our sins, we walk out of these doors and we look at the world and we say, oh, it seems like my sin is still causing problems. It seems like the sins of this world are still wreaking havoc all around us. And so when we look at that, we want to know it won't always be this way. Will it? All right, let me try to answer that question. But first, let me ask you a question. And we'll try to come back to the question I'm asking you at the end. 
if you knew it would not always be this way, which most of you do, what would it change about you? What would it change about the way that you live? Okay, if you knew, it wouldn't always be this way. All right, turn to Revelation 21. If you're not there yet, it's going to be on the screen behind me. This is the last passage in this series we've been in all summer called The True You. The idea in this series is that we are discovering, maybe, for the first time for some, uncovering for others, old passages that describe the big story of Scripture. And we're at the very end now in Revelation 21, the last of our passages. And in Revelation, John, different from John the Baptist, but much like John the Baptist, gets to peer into heaven. In fact, in Revelation 4, the very same language is used to describe the way that heaven opens up and John gets to look inside it, just like John the Baptist did. In Revelation 21, he shares what he saw, and this is, this is what he saw. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, <clears throat> and there was no longer any sea. If you're an underlining person, underline that in your Bible. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the front throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I can remember asking my dad, who was a minister for 30 years, a preacher, I can remember asking him, how is God going to blow up the earth? I guess I had absorbed that in some kind of warped VBS lesson, right? That that was how all things ended. And I had seen recently two movies that came out about the same time, Armageddon and Deep Impact, which were both about asteroids hitting the earth and, and blowing it up. And I was convinced it was going to be something like that, you know, that God was going to whisk us away to some awesome heaven with sweet mansions and streets of gold. And we were going to have a really good view as an asteroid just ran into earth and it just blew up. Right? That was what I was thinking. But look here at Revelation 21, because that's not what John is saying. Look at the text. John's saying that heaven is coming down to earth. Heaven is coming here. And that's really important because apparently God cares too much about his creation to just blow it up. All right, I know that seems silly, but that really matters. And probably some of us kind of have that commitment somewhere inside us, even if we won't name it. But it matters that God's not going to just blow up his creation because it speaks to how much he cares about his creation. And that should be significant to you because you're part of his creation. You know, he's not going to just blow us up, right? God is bringing heaven down here, not because, okay, he has to, but because he wants to. Because he wants to redeem this creation, to transform it, to shape our eternal home right here. Heaven is coming down on earth. It's opening up like it did twice before. And it's going to stay that way, open right here. And the key here, like I had you underline there, is that in this eternal version of heaven, there's no longer any sea. There's no longer any sea. Now, I know at Highland that most of you have probably been to the beach this summer already. And most of you are thinking, if there's not an ocean in heaven, like I'm going to have problems with God. 
Now, like, if there's not the white sandy beach of Destin, frankly, I'm not interested, right? Okay. All right. Well, remember, this is the ancient world, and water sports had not exactly taken off. People didn't have a lot of leisure time there. In fact, most people couldn't swim in the ancient world. So, for them, water represents danger and chaos and death. In Revelation 13:1, John looks at this same scene of heaven and what he sees in this kind of vision foreshadowing before the new heaven and new earth come is he sees this giant and tumultuous sea, this ocean. And out of that sea, this beast emerges and it's got 10 horns spread across seven heads. And it's this gross and vile beast that's breathing out these murderous threats against the people of God. And what we know is that he's talking about Rome. He's talking about the empire of Rome, an empire that's violent and hostile and abusive to people of faith. And so for those Christians who are hearing this about there no longer being any sea, they're not concerned about the lack of beaches in heaven, right? For them, this is really good news. Because the worldview, the culture that gives rise to a violent, dark empire like Rome that deals in death and sickness and hurt and pain, that that water, that culture is going to be drained. That God's going to reach out and he's going he's to pull the plug. And all that causes that death and pain and sorrow is going to be gone. This week in, in my devotional time, I was in Psalm 114. And I discovered this really beautiful image. Psalm 114 is about the Exodus. You remember the Exodus when God's people flee from Egypt and he parts the Red Sea and they get to go through on dry land? Psalm 114 is retelling that same story. And I guess as I had thought about that, what I imagined was that Israel gets to the Red Sea and God says, hey, hold on, let me help you here. And he, and he reaches down and he, he parts the water one way, he parts it the other way, and they walk through on dry ground. But Psalm 114 says it's not like that at all. Psalm 114 says that God shows up at the Red Sea and the sea sees God and gets terrified and runs in the opposite direction, right? The sea flees from the presence of God. And that's the idea here in, of heaven in Revelation 21, that where God is, the sea and all of its death and chaos and tumult, those things cannot stand to be present in the same place as God. So they will flee. And you don't have to worry anymore about death and crying and pain. This is not the first time we read about the new heaven and new earth. If you, if you do have your Bible open or if you've got your device and you want to go to Isaiah 65, you can. This is actually the first time we read this same language where God promises the Israelites who are coming back from um, exile. He says this, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And then he describes in the very same language as Revelation that there's going to be no more sin. There's going to be no more death. There's going to be no more crying and no more pain in this new world. And then you have this gem at the end of the chapter of Isaiah 65. The wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. I want you to picture these things. And dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. What's he talking about? He's, he's describing a world in which animals don't eat each other anymore. Uh, do you remember when Planet Earth came out? 
the documentary that um, was BBC did, I think, Planet Earth. And it's about animals all over the world, animals that are really crazy you've never seen. Well, you may, you may remember that it came out right about the same time the HDTVs were coming out. And so we were all transitioning from those old big box TVs to HD flat TV. It was a really awesome era. Well, I was in college at the time and only one guy in our dorm room had an HD TV. And so we all piled into his dorm room to watch Planet Earth every once a week, right, when it came out. And I don't know, I mean, how much time you spent in guys' dorm rooms, but they're gross. You know, they're really gross. As an example, I didn't wash my bedding in college, freshman year, the whole first year. Just, <laughs> just didn't wash it. Okay. And um, so guys' dorm rooms are gross. We would all pile in there and watch this. And it got, we, we really enjoyed it because most of planet Earth is about predators chasing prey and capturing them. You know, there's these great scenes of cheetahs chasing gazelles and lions attacking this elephant. And there's this really famous scene of an alligator coming up out of the water and just grabbing hold of this wildebeest that is not suspecting it. Well, I hadn't seen Planet Earth in 10 or 12 years, and so I tried to watch it with my two-year-old and four-year-old the other day, which was a mistake, right? That was a mistake. And, and when that scene of the alligator jumping out and grabbing the wildebeest happened, you know, I didn't in that moment think, ah, boys, this is a lesson about heaven, you know? <laughs> the reason this alligator is getting this wildebeest is because of sin and it won't always be this way. No, I didn't think to do that, right? I fast forwarded it. You know, I'll, I'll admit, we watched Lion King the other day. Remember Lion King? I actually fast forwarded when Mufasa dies. So they still think Mufasa's alive. <laughs> don't tell them that Simba's dad is dead, right? Don't, they, still, they don't know why everybody's so mad at Scar, okay? So don't tell them. But yeah, so we don't think about what this passage is describing here in Revelation, that our sin is shaping the whole world. That our sin is this ocean of chaos and pain and suffering that has swept over the whole world, and it affects everything we see around us, even the way the animals interact with each other. And so that's why Paul says in Romans that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up into the present time, awaiting redemption like you and I. All of creation is looking forward to when it won't be like this anymore. It will be new and God won't feel so far away. Let me tell you, I believe God is going to pull this off. And the reason I believe that, and this should be the reason you believe that, is because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, that is the definitive proof of God's power. And if God has the power to bring a man back three days dead, he has the power to transform a world that seems so dead right? and make it brand new. And so that's my word to my hurting friend in the hospital. It won't always be this way. What's next is that God will make all things new. What's next is that God will never feel far away again. What's next is that never again will the pain of death and sin and sorrow be on you. God will wipe it away. He'll drain that sea away. And you're hurting right now because it feels like God is far. 
What we know from scripture is that God is not far, but it feels that way to us who are clouded. Our judgment, our vision is clouded by our sin. And the message that God wanted those who have felt this way in Isaiah's time, those who feel this way in John's time, and those of us who still feel that way that we can't see God is that God is not so far but that this moment is coming when he will feel as close as you can possibly imagine. His arms wrapped around you for all eternity, wiping away everything that might hurt you, keeping it from you. And all of scripture is moving towards this ending. And and I'll tell you, the older I get, and I realize I'm not that old, But the older I get, the more the ending of the story matters to me. You know, it just matters more that what happens in this life will not always happen. Right, that it won't always be this way. You know, I've shared with you about my father-in-law who a year and a half ago was paralyzed. And I know he is longing for the day when he will run and not grow weary and walk and not be faint. He's longing for the end of the story. My grandmother right now is sick with cancer. She can barely eat. She's wasting away. And she called me the other day asking me, what's next? She's longing for the end of the story. We've got these dear friends, Lindsay and I, who are in ministry in another another church not far away. And they lost a a child in a late-term miscarriage recently. And they are longing in their sorrow for this moment when it won't be that way anymore. And it seems like the older I get, the more life I live, the more the end of the story really means to me. It just matters so much more now that in this new heaven and in this new earth, there will be no crying or suffering or death or pain. And that I will be able to look up and see God face to face right here, not veiled by something like 1 Corinthians 13 says, but face to face forever. And that matters. It matters. That's the reminder. That really matters. But what does it change? Well, what does it change for you? That's the question I asked at the beginning. Well, let's ask it this way. What did it change for those who first heard this story? Let me, let me tell you about the early church. There was a guy named Cyprian. This was about 200 years after the death of Jesus. And Cyprian leads a church in North Africa. In fact, a collection of churches. And his churches are in trouble. At that point in North Africa, there is scattered persecution of the church. So you have some Christians who have lapsed. And what that means is that they denied Jesus. Sometimes they would spit or step on an image of Christ rather than acknowledging that Jesus is their Lord. So they would be pardoned from any suffering, but then the church would be really disappointed. And those people who lapsed would try to come back into the church, and that created turmoil because there was people who didn't want them to come back in because they hadn't lapsed. On top of that, there's some Christians who've been treated really badly by their neighbors and they want vengeance. Cyprian has church members who are coming to him describing the vengeance they plan to take on their neighbors. And Jesus says, love your neighbor, remember that. And then to top it all off, this terrible plague, this sickness sweeps through North Africa and begins to kill thousands of people. And Cyprian's church is right in the middle of it. My mom, who's an author, she wrote a book that's set right in this scene. Cyprian's one of the characters or some others. Some of you are shaking your heads because you've read your book. It's a really great book. My mom's a great writer. But there's this scene when the heroine, she's this young, beautiful woman. She's a doctor. 
that this tall, handsome Roman man takes her in his arms and he just plants this big kiss on her. And to read something like that written by your mom is really gross. <laughs> like, that's not supposed to be in my mom. She's my mom, for goodness sake. Right? It's gross. It is a really great story. But in reality, right, Cyprian's church was in a lot of trouble. Things are getting out of hand. And so think of all the things that Cyprian might have preached on in that moment. All the things he might have written to his churches and letters that would be circulated among all those churches. All the possible things he might have written on. Do you know what he wrote on? Patience. Patience. In fact, of all of the virtues that the earliest Christian preachers could have talked about, could have written about, the earliest document we have on the way that Christians should live in this world outside the Bible is by a guy named Tertullian. It's called On Patience. And then a few years later, Cyprian says, I'm going to write about that again. He writes about patience. And then another guy named Augustine or Augustine writes about what? Patience. Yeah. Three of the earliest documents that we have about the early church and how they should live were about patience. Now think about that for a second. What each of these guys knew is that you are, if you are going to endure a world like our world that is full of suffering and sorrow and unimaginable grief, then the only way you're going to be able to endure that is if you are patient. And the only way that you can be patient is if you know how the story ends. If you know, it won't always be this way. So think about this. They're making a really important distinction. And I'll use words that are modern, not their words. They're making a distinction between three things. Ignorance, serenity, and patience. And those three things might look really similar from time to time. Ignorance is not knowing how things are going to end and choosing not to know. Serenity, which is a, a word we get from addiction circles, serenity is accepting that you cannot control the ending. But patience is a different thing entirely. You know, patience is waiting for the ending you know is coming. There is no doubt in your mind this is the way it's going to end. And when you know the ending, it changes the way that you wait. What these early church fathers knew, what John knew as he's writing down Revelation, and apparently what Jesus knew as he gave the vision to John to write down that we find here in Revelation, is that if you know how the story ends, it dramatically changes the way that you wait for that ending. The list of things that you can endure in this life just gets a lot longer if you know it won't always be that way. Right, that eventually that list is piled up and tossed in the trash. Right. I've been um, following really closely the story of the boys in the cave in Thailand. Have you been following this story? Uh, as the story goes, there was 12 boys, I think ages 11 to 16, who were part of a soccer team and their coach. He takes them to this cave in Thailand, this underground cave, and they're going to go exploring after soccer practice. So they park their bikes outside the cave, they lock them up, they even leave their soccer cleats there. And they go into the cave, and what they don't know is that it's begun to rain outside, and so the water levels in the cave begin to rise, and suddenly they can't get out. The water's blocking their retreat. And so they just go deeper and deeper and deeper into the cave, trying to escape the rising water. 
And they finally find this little hill of dirt on the inside of the cave, and they're just huddled there while the water surrounds them. As I followed this story, I just, and prepared for this sermon, I just couldn't help but think of the sea, right? The water that surrounds this, it's danger all around. And so they're in this cave for 10 days. And I just find myself thinking about what they must have been feeling for 10 days in the absolute dark. You know, as they're wasting away, no food, what were they thinking? And then this moment comes on day 10, where out of the water in front of them, there was probably this faint light and the light grows stronger and stronger until these scuba divers emerge and they found the boys. If you watch the video, they say, how many of you are there? And they say, 13. And he says, brilliant, brilliant, remember. And then the boys ask, are they going home today? Are they going home today? And the diver says, not today, tomorrow. Not today, tomorrow. And in truth, it took them a few more days to get them out. Because the boys couldn't swim. It was a dangerous journey out. They had to be taught to scuba dive. Really long, complicated process. So they had to stay there in the dark for a few days longer. But just imagine the difference between days one through nine and days 10 through 16. They were in the exact same place, right? Nothing had changed. They were still on this hill of dirt inside a cave surrounded by water that was preventing them from leaving, right? But on day nine, they were in total darkness with no hope of being rescued. And on day 10, they knew how the story was gonna end. Right, like it changes the way you wait if you know the ending. You know, what the world longs to see from Christians is not that we are panicked, that we are fearful, that we are anxious. What the world longs to see for us is that we are confident and that we can wait patiently for what the Lord has ordained. That it is not up to us to do the ordaining, right? That God is going to bring about his new heaven and new earth here on this earth because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead and has promised us he's doing it again for each of us. Right? On this earth, we will forever live with none of that suffering, none of that shame and sin and sorrow that has plagued us our whole lives. And we know that because we know how the story ends. The world knows what's now. But we, of all people, we are the only ones who know what's next. And so we wait patiently. If you haven't given your life to Jesus and want to do that today, I want to invite you to join us. In fact, we do have a baptism. I'm going to slip off this stage and make my way back there. But if you'd like to be baptized, I invite you to, to head to the back of one of our shepherds. He'll bring you down if you'd like to do that. Or if you'd like prayer, if you'll head back there for prayer, I want to invite you to do that this morning. Will you stand as we sing? Time is filled with swift transition. Not have the moon can stand. Build your hopes on things eternal.